Okay, we're going to be starting a sermon series through uh, the book of Titus, and uh, it's a short series. It's three chapters, and so we're splitting this up into three weeks. Um, this book, you can find it towards the end of the Bible, and it is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his friend Titus. Titus was an early church leader, and he, lived, he was living at this time on the island of Crete, and uh, Paul was encouraging him to lead the churches of Crete well. So that's the context of this book, Titus. Now, Christianity was pretty new to Crete, and as we'll soon find out, Crete was, uh, it has a culture that was very anti-Christian. Um, it was very, it was primarily Gentile, and uh, many people were worshipers of Zeus. In fact, Zeus was believed to have been born on the island of Crete. And so becoming a Christian wasn't just a matter of, you know, changing a few beliefs. It was a totally new way to live. It was a totally different lifestyle. People had to stop being evil and they had to start becoming good. And so that's what much of this book of Titus is about. Um, if there's one theme in the book, it's probably that we as Christians, we are to be good. It's a very simple concept, but it's very radical as well. You know, sometimes we're prone to thinking about, you know, how do we measure what being, a, uh, what being a Christian is like? How do we measure whether we're doing a good job being a good Christian? And we might think, oh, how many Bible verses can I memorize? Or how consistent is our church attendance? How many Christian events do we attend? And these are all ways we measure uh, whether we bring good Christians. But I think this book, I think, illustrates that probably one of the best ways to measure whether you're being a good Christian is, are you being more like Jesus? Are you being more like Jesus? That is the standard by which we measure whether or not we are being a good Christian. Is our character reflecting God's character? Are our actions reflective of our good Father? And so um, this shows up throughout Titus. I'm going to give you just a, a quick rundown of a bunch of verses that talk about doing what is good, okay? Okay, well, this is uh, Titus 2, verse 7. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. And here's Titus 2, 13 through 14. At the very end of the verse, it talks about Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Here's another one. This is Titus 3, 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Here's another one, 3, 8. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone and here's one last one, 3.14. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unprotected lives. So as you can see throughout the book, there's this constant command that we are to do what is good. That the beliefs we inherit should trickle down into our actions and they should translate to doing what is good. But practically, what does that mean? What does it mean to do what is good? Well, throughout the book of Titus, there are many commands um, and in this three-part series, what we're going to do is we're going to highlight three different virtues that the Apostle Paul talks about in this book that are, so you can sort of think of it as, you know, if doing what is good is the, 
the, the, um, the, the header or the thesis statement, what are the three branches, the three virtues that consist of what is doing good. So today, we're going to talk about integrity. We're going to talk about living with integrity. Followers of Jesus are to live with integrity. So let's dive into chapter one. We're actually going to, we're going to read through the whole chapter. I like reading, and so uh, we won't cover every single verse, but I think it's a good way to sort of uh, uh, have, have a framework for the whole chapter, and we'll pick things out along the way, all right? So starting from verse one. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, in which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true son in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. You know, Paul, he loves these long sentences, and so he has this long sentence right here, okay? And there's two things I want to highlight in particular. Firstly, he has this phrase, their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And I think this principle is one that undergirds the whole book, and basically it says, knowing things about God should lead to being a better person. The more things you know about God, the more it should change you so that you become, in, in Paul's language, more godly. If you just know a bunch of Christian things, but it doesn't change you, then it's useless. It's, it's, it's just like you, maybe you're better at doing trivia or something, but that's it, okay? Uh, we need this kind of knowledge that actually leads to godliness, okay? So that's the first thing I want to point out. The second thing is this description, God who does not lie. And this we'll come back to later because this is contrasted with the people who live on the island of Crete. And it's meant to show if you are a follower of Jesus, then you should be living a countercultural lifestyle in which even if the people around you are lying, you should not. But we'll come back to that later. Okay, so hold on to that. Let's keep going. Verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete, talking to Titus, was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must... Uh, hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. All right, so here um, Paul is listing out a bunch of qualifications for an elder. All right, so in many churches, they are elder-led churches, meaning these people, they're in charge, they run, they have the authority in the church, and he's listing out the qualifications. What does it take to be an elder? Okay, so I want to say a few things. So first off, I'm not a fan of preaching passages like this because it's always a reminder to me of how much I fall short, okay? You know, every time I read these, I just feel, you know, a little bit inadequate, a little bit hypocritical. I feel like, you know, look at some of these qualifications, you know, being self-controlled or being upright or being disciplined or not being quick-tempered, and I just, I think about all the times I fail. And that's a, that's a reality, Okay. Um, I feel like it's like someone who's financially bankrupt and they're giving people advice on how to 
you know, invest in the investment advice. Okay, so I feel a little like that sometimes. All right, but I got to talk about this. This is the we're going through this sermon series, and I got assigned chapter one. All right. Now, many of you, you know, when you're reading passages like this, okay, in the Bible, I, especially if you're not necessarily a leader in the church, I think there's a temptation to just go, "Oh, this isn't for me. This doesn't apply to me," and you sort of just move along. But I want to encourage you to read through this for a few reasons. Okay, number one. Uh, don't assume that you're actually not a leader. Sometimes, so in, in the church, I would say, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are a leader. It's just some people, they have official titles, and some people, they don't. But just because you don't have an official title doesn't mean you aren't a leader. And uh, God actually may be using you, without you realizing it, to influence others, and to, uh, to mold others, and to mentor others. And so don't discount that just because you don't have some sort of title, you're not a leader, all right? The second thing I want you to consider is that maybe God is calling you to some form of leadership, some form of higher leadership in the future, and you're not there yet. But maybe passages like this are opportunities for for you to learn about what it takes for you to get there. It's possible God may be calling you to things in the future, to positions in the future that you're not there yet, but learning about these passages will enable you, will equip you to learn about how do you get there. Here's an analogy. Let's say you're a freshman in college, and you're not sure what you want to do with your life, but, you know, there's a possibility you'll go to med school, and so you're pre-med. A lot of people, you know, they sort of, by default, they're pre-med, and about half of them, they fall off the map, but half of them, they, they survive, okay? But let's say you start off college and you're, you're, you're pre-med, okay, what do you do? If you're not sure you're going to go to med school, but you think it's a possibility, okay, what you'll probably do is you'll take the necessary medical school requirements until it becomes clear to you that you're not going to med school. But if you don't know for sure, you're just going to keep taking these classes. You're going to, you sort of, you go along the flow. You'll, you'll live as if you're going to go to med school, right? So a lot of people do that. It's a very common thing that people do. And I would say this, this, the same thing applies to this. You might not know if you're going to be, let's say, an elder at a church. You're going to be on the leadership team of a church in the future. Uh, but unless it becomes clear to you that you shouldn't be, I would just say just live as if you are. These commands that apply to people of high leadership in the church, live as if you want to, uh, uh, live as if you want to uh, um, aspire to these positions as well. Okay, and that's the second thing. Third thing I want to say, and I think this is probably the most important thing, because the reality is a lot of people are not going to be elders in the church, okay? In the modern church in America, we have a lot of bad leaders, okay? This, I mean, this isn't exclusive to modern America, this has gone on since the church was founded. We have a lot of bad leaders. But I would say, uh, because of that, then I think this passage is even more important. Not just for leaders, but for everyone. Because going through a passage like this and studying a passage like this will give you the ability to discern whether someone is a good leader or a bad leader. And I just think, frankly, we need more people in our church who have that gift of discernment, that critical eye, to know who is a good leader and who is a bad leader. So that we have more churches that have good leaders. You see, you know, um, you know there's a lot of incidences in our modern church of, you know, pa- pastors or elders or just people who've 
gone off the rails somewhere along the way. And many of these folks, um, if you were to talk to some of their closest friends or to talk to some of their, the people who attend their churches, they would say, oh, there were warning signs all over the place. Like there were red flags going up here and there. People suspected that things might have been going wrong, but no one stepped up and said anything or did anything. And then it just got worse and worse until it was too late. And in many of these cases, I would say a lot of people in the church, they were either uh, ignorant of some of the qualifications of being an elder, or they were too unconcerned about their leaders fulfilling these requirements, or maybe they were too fearful to say anything about it, or whatever the case, these requirements weren't enforced. And I would say a lot of these unfortunate events that have happened in our modern church are because these red flags happened and people didn't say anything about it. So I believe that the more people in a given congregation uh, there are who are familiar with these requirements, and the more people who feel like they have permission to speak up about these things, the healthier our churches will be. You know, because, uh, I mean, here's a reality if you're not aware. So I'm, I'm a normal person, like I'm a human being, just like everybody else, and all pastors, all leaders, all bishops, all priests, and all, you know, everyone who has any of these special titles, they're all normal human beings. And they're all sinners. And what happens in some churches is sometimes there's this expectation, whether the, the leader puts it on him or herself, or the church puts it on them, there's an expectation to be almost like this uber-human, this super-human, this holy man that is unrealistic. And uh, sometimes, because that perception is there, uh, sometimes they are inclined to hide their flaws, to not be vulnerable about their brokenness or their pain or their issues. And, um, and, and at the same time, you know, people, they talk to them with, with such high language, and because they view these people as representatives of God, they, they are afraid to, to call them out or afraid to say anything bad about them. And what happens is there's this unrealistic holy persona that is built up. Uh, there's less and less people who feel like they have the authority to speak into their lives, and these people, they become more and more isolated, and it's this time bomb for disaster. Um, you know, it reminds me of this uh, quote by the late pastor Eugene Peterson, and he says this, um, The religious leader is the most untrustworthy of leaders. In no other station do we have so many opportunities for pride, for covetousness, for lust, or so many excellent disguises at hand to keep such ignobility from being found out and called to account. Now, this is a pretty strong statement. And again, so this guy, he's a pastor. He's a lifelong pastor. And he's not saying don't trust anybody who's a religious leader. He, he's just talking about the nature of this office. The nature of this job, this vocation, is such that it can be so easy to hide your flaws, so easy to hide your issues, and so easy to sin in such egregious ways and have nobody know about it or even care. Um, you know, I know it can be nerve-wracking to call people out, especially people who are leaders, especially people who are religious leaders, but I do think it is necessary for the health of the church. And so, I want to personally, you know, give you permission, if you ever notice that any of the leaders in our church, I think I can say this on behalf of the leaders of our church, okay, if you ever notice any of the leaders in our church are, do, are in the wrong, are sinning in some way, I, I, I want to encourage you to call it out. Um, 
just for the health of our church. If Larry's ever doing anything wrong, anything he shouldn't be doing, I give you permission to confront me about it, okay? All right, well, that's that. Well, that's it. Let's go back to the text, okay? Here in Titus 1, Paul is giving a list of qualifications for an elder. Uh, there are two things in particular that I think it's noteworthy because they can be a little bit confusing. And so I want to touch on those, and then I'll go over the rest of the list as a whole, all right? So the first thing is found in verse 6, which is this line, an elder must be faithful to his wife, Okay. Many translations translate, translate this in different ways. Okay, some people, some translations, they even have the phrase, uh, an elder should um, uh, be a husband of one wife, all right? Okay, so some people, they take this as a proof text to say that elders should be men and not women. And this shows up in another passage as well. Uh, but the Greek literally says that an elder must be a one-woman man. That's literally what the Greek says. Okay, I, I think... There's different ways to interpret this, but uh, I think the way to properly interpret this is to take into account that this phrase, a one-woman man, in Greek, is actually an idiomatic expression. Okay? It's a common idiomatic expression, and it typically, it means a lot of different things, but typically what this means is that someone should be maritally faithful, that someone should be in a uh, committed, monogamous relationship. That's, that's typically what this idiomatic expression means. And, in fact, I would say, I don't think you're supposed to interpret this super literally, because if you interpret it super literally, that means Paul himself can't be an elder, because Paul is a zero-woman man. He was never married, all right? Okay, so there's a lot of people who, you know, and in fact, if you look at every Roman Catholic priest, okay, wouldn't qualify, because all of them are celibate, okay? They can't be married, all right? So I don't think you're supposed to take, interpret this super literally. I think it just means if you are a married man, then you are supposed to not sleep around. You're supposed to be committed to your wife. I think that's what this text is saying, okay? So that's just a quick note. Secondly, another thing that some people may be tripped up on is the second part, a man whose children believe, all right? And so sometimes people would say, people who have non-Christian children should not be elders, okay? And so this is a little bit more complicated uh, and one of the reasons why it's complicated is because this word believe in the Greek can be translated a few ways. It's actually an adjective, okay? It can be either translated as believing or it can be translated as faithful, okay? So it just says that a person should have children who are believing or children who are faithful. Um, and so people sort of disagree on what this means. But I think another thing, just think about this. If you were to take this into account literally, okay, it would also mean that if you have no children, then you shouldn't be an elder. That's the literal translation, okay? It would also mean if you have children who are babies, then you can't be an elder because babies, they can't believe, okay? So let's say you're an, does this mean, let's say you're an elder, okay, with one believing child, and let's say your wife has another child who's a baby, so this baby can't believe. Does this mean you have to step down from being an elder, for five, six, seven, eight years, whatever, until your child grows up old enough to be believed. I don't think that's the case, okay? So I don't think you're supposed to interpret this super literally. I think it just means generally, in the general sense, if you are an elder, you need to demonstrate signs that you are a good father. I think that's generally what this means. You need to, you need to demonstrate the signs that you're committed to your wife or your, your spouse, and you're committed to your kids. And if you... Uh, if you are demonstrate that you're not a good uh, spouse or a good 
um, a good parent, okay, then it's a sign that you might not be able to run the church very well, okay, if you can't run your own family very well, right? Okay, so that's, so again, that, that's how I see things. So I don't think it's necessary to interpret these things super literally, all right, but, um, but that, that's just, it can be stumbling blocks for some folks, so I just want to mention that. All right, let's go back to the list, okay? So what are the qualifications of an elder? There are a lot of things that are mentioned. Okay, I'll just name out a bunch of them. They're to be blameless, maritally faithful, have respectable children, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain, hospitable, loving what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, able to hold firmly to the trustworthy message, able to encourage others by sound doctrine, able to refute those who oppose sound doctrine. So there's a lot of things in this list, okay? Here's what I find fascinating about this list. The large majority of the things in this list are about character, not competence. The large majority of the things in this list are about character, not competence. Okay, oftentimes when churches, they're looking for people to install, to be their leaders, to be their elders, to be their pastors, they're looking for people with competence. They're looking for people with the skills, with the talents that are necessary to accomplish ministry, to do ministry well. But so they're looking for things like, can this person preach? And can this person do evangelism? And can this person lead a Bible study well? And things like that. And they're looking for people's gifts. But here, in this passage, Paul is looking for people's fruit. They're not looking for the gifts of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. They're not looking for a person's talents, but a person's hearts, primarily. I'm not saying those things aren't important. Those things are important as well. But here, that's the primary focus. Does this person have the character, the heart that it takes to be a leader? And I think a good way to sum up all these characteristics is the word integrity. The word integrity doesn't show up here. It does show up in chapter 2. It doesn't show up here. But I think this captures a lot of the things that are mentioned here. You know, it takes integrity to be someone who's blameless. It takes integrity to be someone who's faithful. It takes integrity to not have dishonest gain and so on. Um, to be upright. You know, this word integrity, it comes from the Latin word integritas, which means to be whole or to be complete. And in our English language, we have uh, several words that come from this same root word. For example, in math, you have this word integer. And what an integer is, is a whole number. So it's not like 1.5, it's like 2, okay? It's, that's an integer. And that connotes wholeness, right? There's no wishy-washy in the middle stuff. You're, you're whole, Okay. Also, we have the word integration. What an integration is, you have multiple parts and you are merging, merging them together as one. You're integrating them together. You're putting them together as one. And it's the same idea. So in having integrity has this concept of your whole self, your personhood, your mind, your heart, your soul. Everything is combined and ingrained, merged into one. It's like you take all the different pieces of yourself, which naturally conflict with one another, and you bring everything under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Your work, your family, your friendships, your time, your money, your vacation, your hobbies, you integrate all of them together so that they are all in sync with one another. They're all working in unison. There's a song by the band Switchfoot uh, called 24. Um, it's one of my favorite songs. And it, it's from the Beautiful Letdown album, which turned 20 years old this year. 
Anyways, it goes 24 voices with 24 hearts, all of my symphonies in 24 parts, but I want to be one today, centered and true. I think this gets at the idea of integrity. It's like we have all of these things inside of us, and they're all going in these different directions, and integrity is to bring them all in sync with one another, such that they're like different instruments playing together the same song in a symphony. It's to have this oneness, this wholeness, this centeredness. And I would say the opposite then of integrity is hypocrisy. What hypocrisy is, is you allow the parts of yourself inside of you to contradict one another, to conflict with one another, so that one part of yourself says one thing and one part of yourself says another thing. And so they are not in unison with one another. And Jesus, he talks a lot about hypocrisy. For example, in Matthew 23, 25 to 28, this is what he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. I'm reading a different translation, I realize. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So, so the Pharisees, they behaved one way in certain occasions, and they behaved another way in another occasion. And there's this metaphor of the play and the bowl, right? And so one way to think about hypocrisy is certain parts of you are totally dirty, and certain parts of you are totally clean, and they're not in sync with one another, Right? Um, living with integrity is to live with such an integrated life such that your inside matches your outside and vice versa. Living with integrity is to not just look good to other people, to, but to be fundamentally a good person such that your thoughts are good, your actions are good, your values are good. Um, here's one way to think about it. Sometimes when we think about the word integrity, we think about the word honesty. We might even use uh, this word synonymously with honesty. But I would say integrity is more than just honesty. Okay. In fact, it's possible to have honesty but without integrity. Because here's the difference. Okay, honesty is telling the truth, but integrity, integrity is living the truth. Honesty is expressing truth with your words, but integrity is internalizing the truth in your heart so that your whole being is true. You see, telling the truth is not just enough. We also need to be true people, and that's what integrity is getting at. We need to make sure that our lives are in sync with the truth, and we're doing all that we can to make sure not only that you know, the truth is lived out with our mouths, but truth is lived out with our lives. Uh, we need to have this heart that we want to make all things right. Okay, here's an example. Okay, let's say... Um, you have a friend who comes up to you, let's say his name is uh, Bob, okay? And Bob says he found a wallet on the ground. And he's so excited because, he, you know, he needs money, and so he found this wallet on the ground, and he's so happy, and you go, good for you, Bob, okay? And then let's say the next day, a friend comes up to you, let's call him Bill, and your friend goes, hey, I lost my wallet. Have you seen my wallet? Okay? If you're an honest person with no integrity, you would just say, no, I haven't seen your wallet. I hope you find your wallet, okay? But if you 
are a person with integrity, okay, and especially if you, you have, you know, some awareness, okay, you would say, you know what, I have a friend who recently found the wallet. I want to check with this friend to see whose wallet this is. You, 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 your desire isn't just to tell the truth. Your desire is to make things right, okay? That's the difference between a person with honesty and a person with integrity. Um, let's get back to our passage, okay? So Paul, he just finished talking about how Christian leaders are to live, okay? And then he talks about false teachers. We're going to read about this in a second. And he provides many characteristics of what a false teacher is like. And what's interesting is, I think you can also make it the case, these people, they don't have integrity. Okay, that's the difference between the qualifications of uh, an elder and the, qual and, and the characteristics of these false teachers. Okay, let's read from verse, sorry, verse 10. Uh, where are we? Oh, you know what? I'm going back. I'm going the wrong way. Okay, here we go. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. The saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in their faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. So what are the characteristics of some of these rebellious people? Okay, so they have meaningless talk, deception, dishonest gain, a habit of lying, being evil, being gluttonous, being lazy, they reject the truth, they're corrupted, they deny God, they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good, okay? Now here's, a, here's something that's sort of interesting, okay? Paul, he calls this group the circumcision people, or the circumcision group, okay? Uh, this phrase uh, appears also in Galatians 2, Paul uses this term there, and in this group, he goes into more depth what this group is, but basically it's a group of Jewish Christians they're Jewish and they're Christians, okay? And they're trying to make sure that Christians still hold on to the Mosaic law, and especially this law that uh, converts are circumcised. All right, so there's kids here, so I won't go in into details. But basically, they prided themselves, okay, into making sure that it's not just enough to become Christians, to change your beliefs. You need to follow a lot of these rules that people in the Old Testament believed, okay? Including you need to be circumcised. And these Jewish people, they pride themselves on being distinct from other people, especially Gentile non-Christians, all right? And so Jewish people at this time, they had all sorts of markers to separate themselves from Gentiles, okay? They did not intermarry with Gentiles. They practiced all these customs, these holidays, and these festivals, and they were circumcised, okay? That's what set them apart. And so what Paul is doing in verse 12 and, 12 and, and 13 as he's saying, so in 12, 13, he says, One of Crete's own prophets has said that Cretans are always liars, evil brews, lazy gluttons. The saying is true. And so he's quoting this Greek poet of his day who's talking about the people of Crete. And this Greek poet, he's saying stereotypically, hey, these Cretans, these people who live on Crete, they're all living in such a horrible way. And again, let me remind you, Crete is primarily Gentile. 
all right? And so, and it did have this reputation of people who swindled people and people who deceived people. And so Paul is quoting this poet and he's saying to these Jewish Christians, he's functionally, he's saying, you're trying so hard to maintain these laws, to be distinct from these Gentiles, but actually you're living just like them. All right, so that's, that's sort of like a... Um, that's sort of like a verbal takedown, okay, that he's sort of doing, okay? He's, he's using irony and sarcasm to say, you're trying so hard to be distinct from these Gentiles with all of your religious laws and your, your, your decrees that you set for yourself, but actually your actions, your heart is actually just like these people, all right? And, and he's saying, you claim to know God, but by your actions you deny them, you deny him. And after all, who is a Christian God? As, as Paul says in, in the very beginning of Titus chapter 1, he says, God does not lie. He says, this is the God that we have. But you're living in such a way with such a moral compass that you are not representing God. You're actually representing the Cretans. And that's sort of the language that Jesus used to confront the Pharisees of his day. He, one time he said, you are, uh, you're not following God our Father, you're living, you're following in the footsteps of the devil, the father of lies. And so that's what Paul is making, the, that's the same claim that Paul is making. You, so-called residents of Crete, who are uh, supposedly holy Jewish Christians, you're actually following in the footsteps of Zeus. How? Because on the outside you seem holy, but on the inside you're not. So by definition, you're hypocrites cleaning the outside and leaving the inside dirty. You see, as followers of Jesus, it's not just enough to outwardly follow some rules. I think that's what Paul is condemning, the people who are just following some rules, like be circumcised. We also need to inwardly follow Jesus with our hearts. So it's not just enough to do a few good things and to give the impression that you're a good person. You also actually need to be a good person. We need honesty, not just... Oh, sorry, we need integrity, not just honesty. In his book, Mere Christianity, you know, C.S. Lewis, he uses this analogy of a fleet of ships to talk about morality, to talk about ethics. And uh, I love the way he talks about this. And it's kind of long, but he, he basically sums it up this way. He says, imagine you're a ship and you're sailing along with a fleet of ships. Okay, what are the things you need to be aware of? He says, there are three things that you need to be concerned with. Okay, number one, talking about the ship. Is the ship running into other ships? Okay, that's very important. You don't want to run into other ships. Okay, number two, is your ship in proper working condition? Okay, like do you have the fuel and do you have the proper rudders and I don't know anything about ships. Okay, those, but you, you get the point. Okay, and number three, is your ship headed in the right direction? Okay, and he says that these three questions, they sort of represent moral questions that we as human beings need to ask of ourselves. All right, so firstly, am I, as a human being, running into other people? In other words, am I hurting people? Am I offending people? Am I causing harm to other people? All right, am I damaging my family members and my coworkers and my neighbors and things like that? All right, and secondly, am I in proper, am I in proper working condition? In other words, is my heart at peace? Do I have rest and security in the sense of, confidence and purpose, all right, and worth? Do I have integrity? And thirdly, am I headed in the right direction? Am I going the place where I want to go? 
Am I becoming a better person? Am I moving towards my life goals? Okay? And as Christians, most importantly, am I becoming more and more like Jesus? And C.S. Lewis, he notes that um, many people, they primarily focus on this first question when they think about morality or ethics. They primarily think about, am I being a good person in the lens of, am I hurting other people? Am I damaging other people? If I'm not, then I'm good to go. And that's why, actually, a lot of people they might, in our world, they say stuff like, why do you care what I do? Why are you judging me? I'm not hurting you. Right? That's sort of the thing people say. Because, in their mind, that's the only thing you've got to be concerned about when you think about morality, when you think about being a good person, is whether or not you're hurting someone. Right? So in their minds, if you don't hurt, something, if you don't hurt somebody with your actions, then you're, you're fine. You don't need to, there's nothing wrong with you. Okay? But the Christian life calls us to a higher standard. It's not just about, are we hurting someone? It's also about our hearts. It's about the condition of our souls. It's about the, the trajectory of our lives. Okay, so it's not enough to, to just say, I didn't hurt anybody today, so I'm a good person. We also need to ask ourselves, am I becoming more like Jesus today? Am I glorifying God today? Am I accurately bearing God's image today? Those are also questions that determine whether we are good people. I love the way Jen Wilkins, she puts it in her book, um, in his image, for the believer wanting to know God's will for her life, the first question to pose is not, what should I do, but who should I be? It's not just about what should I do, it's about who should I be. You know, we have a lot of people in our world, and even Christians, who have a very inadequate definition of what it means to do good. You know, throughout Titus, Paul's constantly encouraging us to do good, to do what is good. But it's not just about our outwardly actions. It's not just about checking off a few boxes and say, oh, we did this and we did, we did this and we didn't hurt anybody's feelings. It's also about who we are. It's about are we being the humans that God has called us to be? So let's stop getting overly wrapped up in how we are, and how we are being perceived to other people, what sort of actions we're doing to other people. Instead, let's be consumed with offering up our whole selves, our whole hearts to God. Let's stop being obsessed with competence, whether it's our own competence, someone else's competence. Let's be concerned about our character. Let's not just be people who tell the truth. Let's Let's be people who live the truth. Let's be people of integrity. In a few moments, we're going to uh, pray, and then we're going to do a time of communion. Once again, as a reminder, if you haven't gotten a communion cup, again, if you are a follower of Jesus, you can go to the back of the room and grab a communion pu- uh, a cup. If you are a parent of a child, it's your discretion. Uh, I know some churches, they have really hard and fast rules about who takes communion who's not. And so we just trust your discretion as parents. If you feel like your child is a dedicated follower of Jesus, you can also... I'll grab a cup for them as well. All right, let's pray, and then we'll do communion. Father God, we thank you so much for this time. Thanks for this chance you've given us to uh, explore what it means to be a person of integrity, uh, to be a person who doesn't just seem good or do a few good things, but is a good person. And God, sometimes I recognize, even in our churches, we sort of rebel against this sort of thing because we want to emphasize so much that we're sinners saved by grace. But 
But God, that's just half of the story. You didn't just call us to be saved just so we could sit around on our hands and do squat. But you called us to be saved so that we could be a good work, workmanship. And so God, I pray that that calling would be something we would live out, that we would be good, we would be good people, we would have good values, we would have good hearts, we would have good character, because that's what you called us to be. I pray that we would live holistically with integrity, that we wouldn't just live one way with our friends, one way with our coworkers, one with our neighbors, one, with it, one way with our church people, but we would just live holistically with integrity, just good all around the way Jesus is, that all aspects of our lives would come into the submission and lordship of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you so much for the gospel that we're about to remind ourselves with through communion, that even though there are days in which we slip up, there are days in which we fall short, there are days in which, you know, I myself question whether I should be a leader in a church. And all of us, we sometimes question whether we're fit to follow you. We thank you so much for the gospel message, which is that though we were sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And one day, our mortal bodies will give way to glorified bodies, and we will be perfect. So we look forward to that day, and we ask that in the meantime, bits and pieces of that future glorified body will trickle down into the present, permeate our lives, and live themselves out in the present. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.